It's Thursday, October 14th, 2021, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Mavroda, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Programming Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in California. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today, uh, the policy implications of the oil spill off the coast of Orange County's Huntington Beach, uh, the end of bill signing season in Sacramento, and the state of the economy in Golden State. In the Golden State. Um, Bill, let's start with you about your recent column in California on your mind entitled, There Will Be Oil in California, which is a take on the film that Daniel Day-Lewis won an Oscar for, There Will Be Blood. Uh, the movie is loosely based on the book Oil by muckraking author Upton Sinclair, who himself was a Democratic nominee for governor in California in 1934. Uh, you write, Bill, that Gavin Newsom and Upton Sinclair don't share much else in common except for their deep disdain for energy that comes from the earth. Uh, and earlier this, month, earlier this month, a cracked pipeline off the coast of Huntington Beach resulted in gallons of oil spilling in the Pacific Ocean, prompting the governor to call for a ban on offshore, dr offshore drilling. Uh, Bill, Bill, my question for you is whether you think Newsom will follow through on his demand, and if so, what is he likely to do? I think the answer is yes and no, and I want to get Leo on this uh, pretty fast. So uh, the governor didn't miss an opportunity to go after oil um, the, once the spill occurred. He walked uh, the beach, looked, uh, showed a lot of concern about it. I think the interior secretary is with him on the walk. Um, he quickly denounced offshore oil, which all Californian uh, coastal politicians do. That includes Republicans for the most part. Uh, but then he went a step further and he went after the fossil fuel industry itself in California. And here the story gets interesting because if you talk to environmental lobbyists in Sacramento, they're not pleased with this governor because he goes after fossil fuels a lot, but they say that he doesn't really lower the boom on the industry. And why would that be? Because there are a lot of jobs in California that are fossil fuel related. And as a chief executive and they're the head of the world's fifth largest economy, you're concerned about jobs at all times. So the question would be, and you raise a good one here, Jonathan, will he really go after fossil fuels in California? Totally. Um, what I wrote about was, you know, California is on this track to get rid of fossil fuels, uh, whether the public wants it or not. We, uh, we saw the executive order that he signed when he came into office, which uh, uh, gets rid of, um, of, um, of gasoline trucks uh, in the 2030s. Uh, and now you're seeing just sort of nickel and dime things going after uh, fossil fuels, which, uh, for example, leaf blowers, which we can get into in a minute. Uh, we want to get rid of uh, gasoline-powered leaf blowers and lawn equipment in California by 2024. But again, the proof is in whether or not he goes after this. And here, here you have a question, Lee, about, about the marketplace and about technology. So, um, for example, um, it might be a better world if you got rid of gasoline-powered automobiles. Um, be a lot quieter out there. I'd get rid of gasoline power motorcycles. I'd be a fan for that, for example. It drives me crazy how noisy motorcycles are. But if you had EVs floating around California, that would be really great in theory, good for the environment. But can California's infrastructure handle this? Um, we're going to need about a million chargers for electrical vehicles by the year 2030. So our government's going to have its act together having charging stations. We're going to have to triple our grid in California by the year 2045 when supposedly we are off fossil fuels altogether. And there are just no signs of any time soon of the grid being able to handle this. Uh, you know, Jonathan, you and I are doing this call from Northern California, Lee's down in Southern California. Uh, as I was writing that column the other day, we were on an alert and the alert was very simple. It's windy outside. If it gets too windy, PG&E is going to shut down the grid here because for fear that the winds are going to topple a power line. So how are you going to be able to electrify an economy when if it gets over 30 miles an hour, they shut down the grid? So Lee, that just doesn't strike me as any way to run a state. No, Bill. I mean, what you're pointing to is kind of a classic case of the, the right hand not really knowing what the left hand is doing. So there's this huge plan to eliminate fossil-based fuels and really encourage um, renewables, but 
the problem we face is that even without taking into account the enormous new number of electrical vehicles that Newsom and others and those in the legislature want, we are not well set up to deliver electricity to California. Even without that, we're going to run into shortages potentially as soon as six or seven years from now, based on current projections. So we can't really be expecting to expand demand for electricity from sources, particularly sources such as electric cars, um, where the whole point is about carbon emissions and um, and you know, California automobile emissions in the big scheme of things are like a couple of grains of sand on the beach. Mm-hmm. So those who, you know, the, the, when we talk about climate change, when we talk about carbon emissions, whatever side of the fence you're on, the, the fact is that it's a global issue and California by itself can really do literally nothing in terms of moving the needle. So Bill, the point you made about California kind of has kind of has the picture upside down, worrying about things that we really shouldn't be worrying about and not worrying about things that we should worry about. This is really a great, this is really great. Sadly, it's a great example of that. It is. So you go after fossil fuels in Southern California, Lee, you can do things such as ban drilling in urban areas. For those who have not been to Los Angeles, one of the quirks of driving around Los Angeles, you see oil rigs all over the place. And these are vestiges of a bygone era when there were oil patch all over Southern California, but they're still in place. And sometimes you see walls around them to hide them and so forth. Uh, but it's tens of thousands of jobs that the governor doesn't want to go after. But Lee, what's interesting about energy in California is it is so at the mercy of weather. Um, last month in September, uh, it got unseasonably hot as it does here. And guess what? We didn't have enough power to meet the demand. It gets hot in California. People turn on the AC. The state of California had to go to the federal government and ask if it could borrow natural gas. So now you're back in the fossil fuel trap. But, you know, again, it's just, it's, it's kind of the sexiness of being the first in the nation to do something. And this will connect to Bill Sonny because there's just no greater temptation for governor to sign something when he could say, hey, you're the first of the 50 to do X, Y, or Z. But in this case, Lee, it's kind of leading to an ugly problem coming down the road in the 2030s and the 2040s of just, you have these ideals set in place, but are you going to be able to reach the ideal? And then what happens to the ideal when it comes to place? You know, getting back to electric vehicles, for example, you know, I would love to have a Tesla. I'd love to drive a Tesla, but I went looking for a car not too long ago and decided I could, number one, spend only X amount of dollars on it. And so it was not practical, but then I looked at it a different way. If I wanted to drive from Sacramento to Los Angeles on a single charge, was it doable? And the answer is no. It's about a 400-mile drive, and a Tesla's right now can go about 370 at the most. So technology is going to have to catch up to what the government wants to do, Lee. And I'm not sure if government can necessarily drag along technology or technology marches to its own beat. No, Bill, perfect point. We've, um, you know, we've been on on this slow-moving ocean liner of sort of placing all our eggs in the baskets of solar and wind for coming close now for 50 years. And um, I mean, if we go back to the 1980s and 1990s, there are pronouncements that, oh, we will, solar and wind will be such powerful forces for energy and everybody should love them because they're renewables. And, um, you know, what was not to like? Well, what was not to like is that the battery technology has not come along nearly as fast as those dreams from 30 and 40 years ago had, uh, had expected. And again, you know, the right hand really not knowing what the left hand is doing. We don't have batteries that can, in fact, during, you know, Bill, when you mentioned the heat wave we had, um, we now have so much solar creation, uh, energy created by solar means that we routinely during the summer months, we have to pay other states. We pay other states to take the excess solar power off our hands so we don't blow the grid. And, you know, it just, and that's just such a head scratch. I mean, people are going to say, what? I mean, you know, we produce, we can't capture this energy. No, we can't. We don't have the storage capacity for it. Um, if we don't pay Texas and Arizona to take it from us, it'll blow the grid. Yes, it will. 
and we have so much solar now that is creating a tightrope dance for those who run the grid because right around the time that people come home from work and the demand for household electricity spikes mm-hmm. is exactly the time that the sun's going down and we produce much, much less solar electricity. So those who run the grid have to do this very delicate dance of shifting over from solar to you know, natural gas. And, um, and when we talk about the slow moving ocean liner, um, that can't be done on a dime. So for listeners who've ever suffered from a brownout or a blackout, right around 5 p.m., 6 p.m. in the summertime, you know, chances are that that is the consequence of the grid operators you know, getting overwhelmed and not being able to make the transition from solar to, uh, to traditional forms fast enough. So to preserve the grid, you know, they have to cut, they have to, they have to uh, not be able to meet, they don't meet the demand. Right. Um, and then, you know, when, and Bill, when you talk about, you know, kind of the second order things people are worrying about, um, you know, again, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, the idea about leaf blowers. Um, right. um, <clears throat> And you know, in whose you know, in whose interest is that? How much will the average Californian benefit from having um, leaf boat, leaf blowers banned? Uh, you know, three years from now. Um, you know, I know whose interest it's not in um, gardeners and landscapers who right. work eight hours a day doing this stuff. And when you talk about when you talk about batteries not being able to hold the charge, whether it's the Tesla or whether it's that leaf blower. Um, you know, that's not practical. So we're going to end up making life very difficult uh, for a lot of the landscapers and gardeners and people who, who use those items all the time. Um, yeah. And nobody's really thinking about that. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded when uh, John Kennedy put in the Cuban cigar, the Cuban embargo, and he had his press secretary, P.O. Salinger, go out and round up a bunch of Cuban cigars for him. Uh, well, first of all, John <laughs> Kennedy knew that the law was coming, but second, John Kennedy had the money to spend to buy a, an enormous amount of Cuban cigars. Very easy for you and I to say that, hey, if O'Hanian or Whalen were worried about uh, being out of the uh, the gasoline-powered lawn blower business, uh, we just go buy five or 10 of these bad boys in 2024 because the law applies to what you buy come 2024. It doesn't eliminate them altogether. We just go out and hoard a whole bunch of them. But you know, Lee, most people are getting by by doing a bunch of lawns every day. They don't have that kind of money in the bank to go hoard these things. So they're going to have to, they're going to have to probably just, you know, be able to get one on the black market perhaps. And it raises another question, Lee, which is just how is government going to enforce this? Are we going to have, we're going to have the uh, leaf blower police out in every neighborhood looking for this? Or are we going to turn it into a Society of people narking on our neighbors because we see it. Um, but the one other note about this, and we can move on to uh, some bills if you want to. Um, we're we're the mercy of one other thing in California. You know, you cannot you cannot legislate morality, Lee. You also cannot legislate rainfall. And one of the reasons why California is in an energy mess right now, it's not raining and we don't have hydropower. And it's a problem not just for California, the entire West Coast. So until the legislature can figure out a way for it to rain. <laughs> It's going to have to maybe, it's going to maybe have to modify our energy demands here in California. Uh, well, yeah, a, a, exactly. We don't have the hydropower. We're in, uh, I mean, this past year was an extre- was extreme drought in terms of lack of rainfall. And yeah. I just saw on the news today that it looks like we're in a La Nina cycle, mm-hmm. which means cooler Pacific Ocean temperatures near the equator, which means the jet stream, which brings the wintertime storms, is going to be shifted up to Washington and British Columbia. And by the time it dips down, um, it's going to be far, far away from from me in Santa Barbara and from you folks in Palo Alto. Uh, And so California is looking at another potentially severe drought year. And again, when we think about, you know, what do we want our governor, what do we want our elected officials to be worrying about? Um, and, 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 you know, and I can't resist bringing up a great story about former Governor Jerry Brown. Um, when, um, when the issue about rainfall came up several years ago, um, I think it was Carly Fiorina, I think at the time, who was running for office. And I think Carly said something to the effect of, hey, look, you know, we haven't put in water storage facilities. We haven't put in water conveyance. We're in drought all the time. This is having such large economic and social and cultural costs. Why haven't we? Um, and she was exactly 100% spot on. And Jerry Brown said, well, that's the stupidest thing I have ever heard 
this is climate change. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I remember just scratching my head and just thinking, you know, Jay Brown's, uh, you know, he's a he's an intelligent fellow. What could he possibly mean by this? And um, all I could conclude was that he is just so wrapped around this issue that he is missing what effectively is the idea of, hey, you know what? The enemy is coming to our shores. We've got to prepare for that. And his idea is, hey, they're coming. <laughs> There's nothing more we can do. Um, and the lack of rainfall and the lack of planning for that is, is the enemy. Um, and, and it just, I think so much of California is in this mindset of, oh, it's climate change. What can you do? You can't do anything. Well, there's tons of things. There are tons of things we can be doing about this. And, um, and then and, yeah, and just to go back though for a second about the idea of fossil fuels. And yeah, I think, I think Governor Newsom is absolutely, he wants to be the first signature on all of the climate friendly lists. Uh, and yet it means absolutely nothing as far as CO2 emissions go. Um, but there are 150,000 people who work in the drilling industry broadly defined in California. Um, so when we think about when we think about no more oil production in California, what do you what are you gonna do about those 150,000 people? The unions are calling uh, essentially for write a bunch of checks. If if my fellow or my gal gets laid off, you need to write them, you need to write them a check. Right. And that opens up the whole door of political protection and political favors and Hey, why does the energy worker get an incredibly, incredibly generous uh, severance package from the government, and not uh, hundred thousand other people who are losing their jobs for other reasons? Great, great points, uh, gentlemen. Let's talk about um, recent legislation. Uh, legislative season is over in Sacramento. In total, um, eight hundred and thirty-six bills crossed the governor's desk, and he signed ninety-two percent of them. Um, there are some noteworthy ones and some others that further ignite culture wars nationwide. Uh, we talked about the housing and zoning bills in the last episode. Um, he also signed police accountability bills. He signed a bill um, that eliminates the liability for individuals attempting to suppress wildfires and reduce fire risks. Uh, we talked about the um, his phase out um, or the phase out of, um, of, of leaf blowers and gas powered lawnmowers. Um, but there are others. He told retailers that they had to sell gender-neutral products to children, uh, mandated ethnic studies requirement and ethnic studies requirement in school curricula, curriculums, and limited sentencing enhancements for some crimes. Uh, for these and other uh, legislation not mentioned, um, gentlemen, what was the, I guess, what was the good, the bad, and the ugly? To borrow another movie title. Well, let me let me jump on this because I, I want to tee up Lee to talk about uh, something that I know he's been following very closely, and that's ethnic studies in uh, public schools. Um, I think one thing you saw at play here was actually the recall election, of all things. Uh, for all the talk about the recall, um, it did modify behavior in the legislature. Now, granted, there's a there's a bit of a tension within Democratic uh, caucuses and in legislature between uh, moderates and liberals. Uh, but what you saw, you know, the governor, you mentioned the stats are I think he vetoed 66 bills this year in all. Um, but uh, the vetoes were somewhat interesting. He would sometimes plead poverty, say we just simply don't have money for that, which is kind of interesting argument. You have $266 billion to spend on a budget. Um, sometimes there was a little bit of an FU in the message saying that, you know, as I've said in a previous veto message, in other words, he's saying, stop sending me the same thing, uh, which gets to the Einstein definition of insanity, doing the same failed thing repeatedly. Um, what's interesting to me, though, gentlemen, was the stuff that did not make it to his desk, which I think is what the recall was responsible for. Um, um, smart Democrats in legislature realizing that, you know, the governor could get bounced. And one of the reasons why he could get bounced would voters would just say that this is just too much of a freak show that's going on in Sacramento. So you did not see a single payer health care bill get to the governor's desk. Uh, you did not see a bill that would have banned corporate donations to political candidates. You did not see a bill that would have legalized psychedelic drugs. I'm sorry, Lee, you'll have to wait till next year on that. Um, you didn't see a bill that uh, sanctions clinics where addicts can use illegal drugs under medical supervision. And you didn't see my favorite one of all, a bill that would allow people to turn their bodies into garden compost after death. 
talk about a bill that would go viral around the world. Um, but yeah, there's just this inverse thing about bill signing in California. The governor didn't do anything this year that we'd consider to be landmark. It was just a lot of kind of nickel and dime only in California stuff. You mentioned, for example, uh, AB 1804, which requires large department stores that sell kids products to maintain gender neutral sections for toys and child care items. The idea being that if your son or daughter sees a pink uh, item or a blue item, they are somehow, you know, they feel pressured into figuring out their sexuality. Um, stores like Target are already doing this, so I'm not sure why Sacramento needed to step in. Um, I was teasing Lee before we got on the air that um, UCLA is now proudly a public university that believes in so-called menstrual equity because of a state law that now requires California public universities to provide free menstrual products on campus. Again, can't the UC and CSU systems figure it out themselves? But the one that stood out to me, and I want to get Lee's thoughts on this, is ethnic studies, a requirement that all California high school students now cannot graduate unless they've taken an ethnic studies program. Third time was the charm here. They tried this twice and it failed. This time it got through the process. But Lee, there's a big consideration here, and that's simply what are kids going to be taught? And what stand out to me are two things. That first of all, the Los Angeles Times editorial board, which is hardly a bastion of conservative right-wing thought, uh, thinks this is a very bad idea. And secondly, there's a genuine concern, and that would be anti-Semitic uh, content. Yeah, Bill, absolutely. This has been one of the most provocative and controversial pieces of legislation that have they've gone on for years now. Um, and there's a sense in which, um, and there's a sense in which what, what was signed, what went through the state legislature, what was signed by the governor, there's a sense in which it's really not going to be any better than what was trotted out in the first draft. Bill, you mentioned three drafts in the first draft, which was roundly criticized by the LA Times, you know, pretty liberal news, uh, news media, roundly criticized by the Washington Post, roundly criticized by almost by almost everyone, except really the the group of consultants that were that were hired by the state to devise this curriculum. And you know what did they come up with? Well, they came up with um, with statements such as capitalism is is a big bad. It's a form of power and oppression, and it keeps people of color in poverty. And you know, as an economist, I just look at statements like this and just think, you know, where, where, how are people thinking about this? Um, a market economy is the only form of the allocation of resources within a society that has legitimately lifted people out of poverty. You look at China, you look at India. Uh, these are two of the fastest growing countries in the world, home to, um, you know, home to billions of people. And the fact that we now have relatively freer markets operating in these countries is the reason why health outcomes, people are getting enough food to eat, people are living in um, safe housing, is the only reason why hundreds of millions of people are not starving to death. Um, and yet we have the ethnic studies program saying capitalism is a form of power and depression and, and it keeps people in poverty. Now, as we went through this whole process, what came out, what was signed by Newsom, the law says effectively that none of these ethnic studies courses really should make anyone feel bad or you know, should not denounce any group. Um, this should be some type of uplifting experience. Um, and yeah, that would be great. That would be great if it was. Um, if we just celebrated the differences we have and how we can come together and make California even more productive place, all that would be great. But, um, but sadly, it's not going to be that. So a lot of school districts uh, are now either adopting or considering adopting what effectively is the very first draft of the curriculum that has been rebranded as something called liberated ethnic studies. And, and this is being advertised and marketed at virtually every school district in the country. Right. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you some of what is in this liberated studies curriculum. Um, Capitalism is a form of power and oppression. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is back in there. Uh, for grades three, grades three, 
what is going to be taught to nine-year-olds is how normalization dehumanizes people. Now, how, how does normalize, normalization dehumanize people? Well, that's kind of all supremacy, and it's about words um, such as patriarchy and cis-heteropatriarchy phobia. Right, I had to practice it a couple of times before we, we came on here. And anthropocentrism. And right. so uh, I didn't get that one. We're going to be teaching third graders because um, what the lessons are going to refer to is that most of what we take is to be normal interactions between human beings. Where that's considered normal, well, no, that is dehumanizing people. So what really troubles me about this is that a bill was passed, the letter of the law is gonna be violated normally. And parents are gonna to have to swallow this. They're gonna to have to swallow issues about white supremacy. Uh, they probably aren't gonna learn that under uh, Mao Zedong, uh, that 60 million people died because a market economy was not present because of socialism. I don't think they're gonna learn about that. Um, I, at one point, um, Martin Luther King was left off the list of African-Americans who should be celebrated. Who was on that list? People who have done little more than become famous by being convicted of killing police, but who proclaim sense, uh, have gone through um, reviews and appeal procedures and remain in prison or who escaped to Cuba, that's who's being celebrated, not Martin Luther King. <clears throat> One reason being that Martin Luther, Martin Luther King's message of colorblindness and treating people as individuals, uh, that's not really the message I think that the folks who operate within the world critical race theory, uh, critical race theory believe. They want to convey something much, much in my opinion, something that's going to be quite destructive. Right. So, Lee, I don't think the LA Times is necessarily against the idea of uh, requiring ethnic studies. I think its concern was that uh, you have a state model, but then local districts can design their own curriculum, uh, curricula and deviate from the state model. Um, so I think what you're saying here is what's problematic about that. Uh, what is the anti-Semitic um, issue here? Is it Israel and Palestine or something else? Yeah, it's very much Israel and Palestine. So we have seen in the last few months, uh, UTLA, United Teachers of Los Angeles, which is the union that represents um, teachers in the LA school district, which is over 600,000 children. Right. They have written a position paper, um, essentially supporting Hamas in the current conflict between <clears throat> Palestine and Israel, and of course, Hamas is a is a group that's been around a long time. Uh, is considered a terrorist group by the United States. Is considered a terrorist group within the EU. Um, and when you want to talk about, you know, stay in your lane, do your job. Um, it's interesting that international geopolitics uh, is is a focus of teacher union teacher union policy positions. Uh, and the UTLA has done that. Uh, the San Francisco uh, Union has also done that. Um, and it's very, you know, it's very, very focused. It's very much we are against Israel, um, almost to the point, I mean, I mean, you know, some of this discussion has gone to the point where it has been argued that Israel is neither a legal state, um, that they were created in kind of a backhanded way and that they have taken land that belongs to others. And... Um, you know, Bill, what's interesting is that um, you might think that some of these same unions would be worried about Russia and the Ukraine. Um, have you seen have you seen any memos denouncing Russia about their activities in Ukraine a couple of years ago? I, I, I haven't so far. But if you want to talk about aggression uh, and imperialism, um, that's a place I think we can look and, and learn a lot from yet. That is completely absent from these concerns that are, that are being represented by teacher unions. Uh, Lee, the subject of your California on your mind column this week um, is Tesla CEO of Elon Musk's decision to move from the Bay Area, move his headquarters from the Bay Area to Austin, Texas. Uh, last month, Lee, you wrote a report about the exodus of firms from California. Uh, what does the Tesla move mean for California and uh, the California economy? And are we going to see a domino effect involving uh, similar companies. 
Well, 2000, uh, 2019 and 2020 were the years of the greatest exodus of business headquarters. Um, and this includes companies like, you know, Hewlett Packard, which was one of the Silicon Valley's, you know, earliest innovators has been there, been there forever. Um, and, you know, this includes Oracle. Um, this included Elon Musk, who said, I've had it, I've had it with California. I'm moving to Austin, Texas. Tesla was still here when Musk made that decision. But Musk had been threatening late last spring to move Tesla headquarters to a more business-friendly state such as Nevada or uh, Nevada or Texas because uh, he wanted to reopen his plant in Fremont. Um, and within the county, the county told him, no, you can't reopen your auto plant. And he argued, well, hey, I think I'm the only auto plant in the United States that is not authorized to operate now? Am I not an essential industry? So then Musk said, well, you know what? I'm opening whether there's a rule or not. And then very cleverly, you know, he's, he's the 160 IQ guy. He worked this out pretty quickly. He said, I'm opening the plant. I will be on the factory floor. And if you're going to arrest anybody, let it be me. And of course, Musk knew that he would never get arrested. And he also knew that a few days later, Newsom and the county would have a discussion and they would cave and then they would permit him to reopen. And so they said, okay, you can reopen and then you could gradually scale up operations. So what did Musk say? He said, nope, <laughs> we've already gone to 100%. You know, thumb in his nose at, uh, at the county. Uh, and then... Um, our, uh, our good friend, uh, Lorena Gonzalez, who's an assemblywoman uh, in the San Diego area, dropped an F-bomb on Musk. She said, F Elon Musk. And he said, message received. Some of us complain, others of us create, create products that people really want and that the state government and the state governor really want the most efficient electric cars that are produced. And I'm the one who produces those. And so now Musk has come back and, you know, he left the playground. He kept his ball at the playground. Now he's come back to pick up his ball and he is moving Tesla headquarters um, to, to uh, Austin, Texas. And uh, um, so, you know, we still have people like Lorena Gonzalez within the state. We've lost Elon Musk. Um, and Jonathan, yeah, you're absolutely right. We don't want to lose these visionary entrepreneurs um, who have these not only just remarkable ideas, but they can create them and implement them and they can market them and they can make them a part of our lives. Um, very few people, you know, <laughs> you know, one out of millions has the ability to do that. Yeah. So Jeff this Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, we, those are the people, those are the people we want to keep here. We don't want those type of people to, to be lost to other states. Yeah. So Lee, this is the third big piece of Tesla news in the last seven or eight years, and I'm not including uh, Musk's famous, you know, pledges to sell homes in California and stuff like that, which I found amusing. Fascinating, by the way, the man owned a lot of nice houses in California. Um, but if you look what Tesla's done here, so the first thing Tesla does, which involves California, if you will, there's a competition uh, for uh, building uh, lithium batteries and uh, Nevada wins it. But, you know, Lee, if you look at that one, I'm not sure that's one California would have wanted to be in because if you look at the deal that Nevada gave them, um, I wouldn't call that reckless, but my God, it was just a complete giveaway. Tesla's tax break, uh, Nevada, 15 times bigger than any previous deal in Nevada history, uh, provided 100% ab um, abatement of sales tax on equipment for 20 years, 100% on real estate and personal property taxes for 10 years, uh, tax credits totaling $195 million. I'm not sure if I were a Californian, I would want that deal for Tesla. Uh, it just, it's too much. It kind of begs the question, what else would you have to do? But more interesting, uh, perhaps, Lee, is the next uh, fight, which was over, I think, truck batteries. Who's going to build the truck batteries? And that California was never in that conversation. It was always between Oklahoma and Texas. I think, uh, I think Tulsa and uh, Oklahoma City and Tulsa and, um, and Austin were the two finalists for that. And you never heard California mentioned. Um, now, no. I, can, I can understand, uh, I can understand uh, Musk moving the headquarters to Austin because he moved to Texas. Why not? If I'm running a company, I don't want to go back and forth. Um, I wouldn't have the company there. But 
What is Tesla's future footprint in California, Lee? And this does get back to the question of what the future tech footprint in, in California is as well. Are we going to see Tesla expand in California or are we going to see visionaries create in California? It's analogous to me to phones, Apple phones. You get an Apple package and it says what, you know, designed in California, but guess what they're not telling you? Built in China. Is that going to yeah. be the California way where just California is going to do the intellectual thought, but the actual physical thought and the production is done elsewhere? <laughs> That, that's, that's the road we're on, and uh, I don't see any reason why we're going to get off that road of incredibly productive, visionary people who are making enormous amounts of money and we're buying estates in, in, uh, in Menlo Park and San Mateo and all that, high, and, and in San Francisco on the top of Knob Hill, and then a sea of service people who work for them, the pool cleaners, the dog walkers, the people who fix roofs. Um, that's the state we're in, yep. largely speaking now, and, and that's just going to become even more of, of a fact. And Bill, when you mentioned that Nevada kind of gave away you know, pretty much everything they had yep. to land this deal with Texas, uh, with Tesla, um, really interesting economic story because Nevada is so heavily dependent on the tourism industry. Right. They're worried. They're worried if COVID continues, will they ever be able to get back to where they were before? So they're trying to diversify a little bit. This shows just how desperate they are to diversify. But it really, you know, your point is um, is incredibly is incredibly interesting because it raises the idea of how many, how much in the way of subsidies should a state give away to to Tesla or Musk or, or any of these any of these high flying producers. And what's really striking to me is that for a long time, Tesla, from a standpoint of manufacturing, was not making money. They were making money by selling regulatory credits. So every automaker in the state, by law, has to produce a certain share of their autos have to be electric vehicles. Uh, Tesla is 100% electric vehicles. So they have what are known as these regulatory credits that they can sell on the open market to other auto producers to satisfy the regulatory requirement. And they have earned $3.6 billion in subsidies from selling those regulatory credits over time. So what's striking is that we not only lose Elon Musk, but he's willing, he's willing to, you know, he's gonna to continue to operate his Fremont Auto Plant, but he's willing to walk away from, you know, a lot of subsidies in order to go to Texas, which doesn't have, these regulatory subsidies. Um, so yeah, I think we're gonna be continuing to be an economy where people dream up things and they get the ball rolling and then poof, that is gone. And that we'll have to continue to rely on people to have those remarkable innovations and that they wanna be in California. And Bill, it is so important that California was never in the conversation for developing the truck batteries Right. Because, you know, we could, we could have thrown a lot of subsidies at them, but what Musk's move is telling us is that really good, sound economic policies, low regulation, low taxes, low housing costs for your employees, that ends up trumping the opposite, even if there are a lot of subsidy dollars involved. So let me run, let me run, a, yeah, let me run something else by you, Lee. This will take a minute to explain, but there's another Northern California company that does imaginative things and is called Facebook. And Facebook is sort of everybody's favorite punching bag these days. Uh, our colleague, Neil Ferguson, wrote a really smart column on this uh, for Bloomberg uh, the other week. And he said, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is learning a hard lesson and that Zuckerberg is um, turned himself into a 21st century version of, of John D. Rockefeller, uh, having the corner on the markets so and the trust busters are after him. Uh, but he's also turned himself into something of a 21st century William Randolph Hearst. And he's seen it's just kind of controlling too much influence over a medium and people don't like them. Uh, the question would be this, Lee, do you see Musk in any way becoming a Zuckerberg in terms of a political target? I'm especially interested in terms of from within California. If you looked at Newsom's actions when Facebook uh, announced that it was, or when uh, uh, Tesla announced that it was uh, relocating the headquarters, he smiled and he took it in stride and said very nice things about Elon Musk. Now, maybe that's because Newsom owns Tesla's and he wants to make sure they still get serviced and all that. So. <laughs> we'll get on his bad side, but could there be a pushback against Musk? You know, could could the, could the pendulum swing the other way? Could you see Sacramento and the governor go after him in any way? And if so, what could they really do to complicate his life? 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, Newsom has known Musk for years. Right. Uh, and I think they've had at least one time they had a pretty close relationship. And, and I'm sure there was some back channel communications between the governor and between Musk, as in, you know, the question asked, hey, what's it going to take to keep you? And, right. you know, and, and Musk gave him some terms. Um, and obviously that that never went that never went very far. Um, Musk is, uh, you know, he's um, yeah, he's he loves to be iconoclastic. Um, he's a very, 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 very smart person. He knows he's a very, very smart person. He was that kid in the class that sat in the front row and that everybody, you know, you know, and raised his hand and, and wouldn't wait for the teacher to pick up, you know, to pick on him to answer. He would just answer the question. The kids didn't like him. Um, you know, he's that guy. And he certainly you know, he has libertarian leanings. He, he uh, if you look on this list of books to read, I think uh, Ayn Rand is on that book, which is you know, the classic book for libertarian thinking. Um, you know, he's far from the left progressive thinker that um, that you know, ironically, Zuckerberg professes to be, uh, and uh, and the Zuckerberg um, the Zuckerberg Foundation um, doing all sorts of woke progressive things. So I think he suspected that he would be a lot happier at some level. I mean, uh, you know, the Austin climate is going to be a tough one <laughs> compared to uh, compared to San Mateo. Um, but um, I, I suspect that um, you know the, the, the auto plant's still here in Fremont. It'll still produce cars. Uh, one interesting thing he said is uh, he called his Fremont operation spam in a can indicating that, um, hey, I can't really expand here. Um, where are my workers gonna come from? Um, Fremont has the highest home development costs in the state. It costs $150,000 on average in development fees for a single family home, $75,000 on average per unit for multifamily housing. Mm -hmm. All I can think of is the city has horrible budget problems because those numbers are just absurd. Median single family home in Fremont sells for 1.4 million. He, he, I think with all of his smarts and all this creativity, he just couldn't figure out how you would get close to being profitable, ultimately trying to expand his operations in California. So he'll sit with spam in the can uh, in Fremont and Austin, Austin city limits are welcoming to him. So uh, I think he probably made a, a wise decision in, in many ways. I think, uh, I think Lorena Gonzalez was probably speaking for many yeah. um, uh, when, when she uttered those famous words. Mm -hmm. Ali, you talked about uh, Nevada's desire to diversify its economy um, and to attract companies like Tesla by you know, providing a more attractive uh, regulatory uh, and business environment. Um, it's been reported that almost all job growth in California has been in government jobs and in the leisure and hospitality industry. Uh, why hasn't, um, maybe it's for the reasons that you mentioned, but why hasn't the state's job growth this year been broad-based? Yeah, so um, so as we come out of COVID and, and, you know, and trying to deal with the complexities out with new with new variants emerging and, and trying to figure out whether existing vaccines are highly protective uh, against those new variants. Um, states are returning to economic growth. California's unemployment rate um, is now 7.2%. I believe it's still the 48th um, highest in the country, I think behind only Nevada and, uh, and Hawaii, uh, both of which we talked about are so leisure, leisure, uh, leisure tourism, travel centric. Um, and, you know, the governor was very, very excited that California added a little over 100,000 jobs um, in the latest month. And when you look at the numbers, you dig a little deeper, what you see is that over 80,000 of those jobs are government jobs and jobs in the tourism industry, right. which are naturally coming back now that uh, uh, a lot of the shutdowns are being lifted. So you look at, you know, 110,000 jobs were created, um, 49,000 were government jobs, I think 39,000 were the leisure industry. So 90,000 jobs out of 110,000 jobs, this is really a devastating report because it shows that we're not getting a broad-based recovery that we were hoping for. Um, essentially, every other industry is really, you know, quite stagnant. 
And you ask yourself, you know, well, you know, why is that? Well, you know, during the during the pandemic, you know, people were leaving, companies were leaving. Um, there's still a lot of confusion um, within the state uh, about um, about what's permitted and what's not, and when you have to have a mask. And every other week, we see a politician, such as San Francisco Mayor London Breed, in, you know, being in you know being unmasked in uh, in a nightclub. Um, it's just not a state right now that's competitive. Um, and I've been speaking with um, the LA Chamber of Commerce and uh, which, you know, which is a really big organization. Um, and they're the businesses with who are in leadership positions on the LA Chamber mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, before talking to me said, we're really concerned about the leadership of the state and how from a foundational point of view, regulation and taxes and housing prices are making it really impossible for California to compete. And that's, you know, that's, that's what we're seeing. It's been interesting, Lee, just to notice the bounce back here in California. I, was, I had dinner last night with some colleagues and we uh, had dinner not too far from the Stanford campus. And we noticed in the uh, shopping center we're in, uh, there was one new restaurant uh, that we were at, but also like two other restaurants that have been kind of fixtures there. They were goners. They got struck down by COVID. And you see this continuing in this neck of the woods and probably true elsewhere in California where just the bounce back isn't there. Restaurants aren't getting staff. They, they can't hire enough people to both work in the kitchen and serve. So they have to adjust their hours uh, and that uh, that affects people getting out. But one thing I'd like to get into, I'd like to get your thoughts on, is uh, one of the T's of California's economy. Back in the Stone Age when I worked for Pete Wilson in Sacramento, we talked about the various T's of the California economy, which would be tourism and technology and trade. And let's spend a minute about trade, because as we talk about the supply chain crisis in America, this strikes very much at home in California, in both the Bay Area, but also the Port of Los Angeles. Uh, I saw a report the other day, Lee, uh, there, uh, as of a few days ago, there were about 1 million containers sitting offshore in America. And of those 1 million containers, about 90% were related to Christmas in one way or another. And this is our import economy. We come up with ideas in America, we shop in America, and we get our goods from India and China and other countries shipped into us. And right now the system ain't working. The ships aren't coming into port. There are enough people there apparently to unload the containers and not enough truckers to take the containers away to other parts of America and line the shelves on the likes of Target and so forth. So um, unless we're looking at a very Scrooge-like Christmas where everybody just gets a gift certificate and a pat on the back or some cash and say, good luck, um, you know, how are we going to put presents on the tree? The question here, Lee, is just California's economy and this kind of this 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 chain of command, uh, if you will, of um, of how the economy works in terms of relying upon imports and getting the imports unloaded and spread out. How are we going to get through this? Yeah, that's um, Bill. That's a great point. Um, we're more dependent on imports than any other time in our history. Uh, we're very vulnerable. Our economy is very vulnerable. To making sure that those imports, you know, come in and go th- and and um, and are offloaded, and right now we we have an enormous shortage of truck drivers. Um, right. Just not enough truck drivers around to uh, to put those containers on those trucks and drive them where they uh, where they want to go. So Biden announced recently that he was going to try to get the Port of Los Angeles up to you know operating twenty four seven. Okay, we still have this shortage of truck drivers. So unless we're willing to pay a lot more money to truck drivers, that problem is still going to be there. The ports of LA and Long Beach are responsible for about half of all imports coming to the U.S. So you just see how important it is uh, uh, in terms of products that are being produced somewhere in Asia uh, and then being shipped uh, to the West Coast. Um, and you know the Everybody, you know, everywhere you hear about the supply chain crisis and, you know, and what does that mean? Well, we're now, we now live in such an integrated global economy that, you know, no, you know, and you think about, you know, who produces what? Well, goods can be involved in uh, dozens, sometimes hundreds, when you get down to ideas such as uh, highly complicated products such as cell phones. Could be dozens, maybe even a hundred different manufacturing operations. I know that there are some goods 
um, in which the good might be started to be produced in the U.S. It's shipped to Mexico. Mexico producers do a little bit to it, ship back to the United States. United States producers do a little bit more to it. At the end of the day, it's gone back and forth maybe six or eight times. So we're, we're incredibly dependent on transportation services and being efficient about that. We've got a huge backlog of, <laughs> of boats sitting out there in the ocean that can't get in. And again, when we talk about the emphasis within this state on, on climate, well, those diesel engines, I don't think are the most, are, are, are not the cleanest producers uh, out there, uh, shall we say. So this is a this is a huge issue. We'll see if making these ports go 24/7 uh, makes a really big dent. I worry. I still worry about the fact that there's not enough truck drivers because um, that really seems to be a big part of the bottleneck. So we'll 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 see if we have a, if we have a good Christmas or, or or kids look under the tree and they they see the Amazon gift certificate. You know, the truck driving thing is fascinated, Lee, uh, because it ties into several things. Well, I guess in addition to wanting to ban fossil fuel trucks in California. Um, but, um, you know, there's always been a stigma of sorts attached to, to a work like being a truck driver, if you will, if you're, if you're an elite. Uh, you scoff when you see the Diesel Mechanic Institute ads on TV and so forth. But the reality is truck drivers earn, I think, about $50,000 and up. It's, uh, you can actually make a living doing it. Uh, it ties into something in California, which may sound kind of cold-hearted, but not everyone should be going to college. Not everybody is meant to go to college. Maybe some people can find a living uh, through truck driving, so perhaps we should be steering California. Um, but I have a thought here, Lee. Um, California is in a very odd place right now because, first of all, the state is swimming in money. Um, thanks to the markets doing well during COVID, uh, this is one reason why tech has thrived. Tech, tech, you know, COVID was a bonanza for a lot of tech companies, Zoom, Apple, and so forth. Um, so a good year in the market. Uh, and then secondly, a bunch of money coming from Washington, which helps sweeten the bill. And, you know, we had so much money that Gavin Newsom could just throw away $115 million just, you know, doing silly ads, trying to get people and doing silly lottery stunts to get people to try to get vaccines. But there's at all times, Lee, this appetite for just kind of easy money in California. And uh, here's what I have my eye on. There is an initiative uh, coming down the road in 2022, and we'll do an initiative show at some point. Um, and what this would do is this would legalize sports betting in Indian uh, casinos in California. This is something the casinos have wanted for a long time. Why? Uh, People go to Las Vegas for a lot of reasons. One is to go there on the weekends and bet money on horse races and football games and so forth. When Jerry Brown was the mayor of Oakland, Lee, he floated with he floated the idea of doing a casino uh, on a, a old army base in Oakland's confines and others. It's just easy money. But here's the question with this, Lee, and perhaps Dr. Ohani needs to write a paper on this for us. Um, trying to encourage people to spend more money on gambling, on gaming, trying to get more people to sign up for the lottery and things like that. This is not good economics, is it? Because I think that people, this tends to attract people who have less money to spend in the first place. So there's people who should be saving their money instead, put it into scratchers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The demographics of those who, um, for example, uh, example, participate in California Lotto, and that was advertised as a way to, hey, you know, it's a win-win. People can, you know, Dream big and win big, and and hey, the, the schools are going to be funded well. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know. I mean, we know how that we know how that worked out. Um, int- so here's the interesting statistic, Bill. Um, uh, in terms of administrative costs, uh, less money from Lotto, a smaller share of money from Lotto. At least this was the case a few years ago. Goes to schools, than uh, and was and and was paid out paid out in the terms of winnings, then uh, if you were playing the numbers game run by the mafia at the turn of the century back in New York City. In other words, you had a better chance of winning if you were, <laughs> if you were playing with the mafia uh, than you do in winning uh, winning lotto. So yeah, they tend to be low, very low income people. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they have a dream. They have a dream that, that they'll hit it big. Um, so no, it's not particularly good economics. And the state is trying to take business away from the areas where it is legislated um, because of Sacramento's voracious appetite. Uh, you know, no matter how much, no matter how much revenue comes in, they'll, they'll find a way, they'll find a way, they'll, they'll find a way, they'll find a new sinkhole <laughs> to put it into. Um, so yeah, in terms of sports betting, uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably, I think that's probably a no brainer. I think we'll probably, we'll probably see that. Um, 
And it also raises perspective of, um, you know, why can't, whatever happened to the idea of a, of a budget and sort of living within the budget and trying to prioritize and, you know, Bill, just to go back to a point you made, um, <clears throat> hey, lawmakers are worrying about gender neutral, gender neutral toy stores and gender neutral department stores. Um, and, you know, I think the big point there is an unwillingness of people to really understand how a market works or to trust a market process. If consumers want gender neutral, they, you know, department stores, and you mentioned Target, right. they will provide that. You know, they don't, ha- <clears throat> they don't have to be told with a $5,000 violation to do that. If their customers want it, they will provide it. Just like if you walk into you walk into a grocery store and there's always orange juice because people want orange juice. People want gender neutral stuff. They'll get it. And we have people, you know, we have Sacramento worrying about that stuff rather than worrying about the tax system this way too this way too cumbersome and way too uncompetitive. And hey, you know, if they spend as much time worrying about hey, what if we made California a more regulatory a more regulatory place? What if we reform some regulations? If that stuff got more more thinking time, then I think we'd be a lot better off than uh, than some of the nutty things that got passed or or that didn't get passed, such as people worrying about um, whether uh, jaywalking should be uh, should be decriminalized. I, w- uh, I would encourage our um, lawmakers to spend more time in Target Lee because I I go to one not too far from here. It's in Redwood City. Uh, it is a real interesting cross section of um, of this part of California. Uh, you see people in there clearly of means. You see people in there clearly not of means. Uh, at the same time, you're selling very affordable stuff. On the same time, there's a overpriced coffee Starbucks in there. Uh, but yet, to me, Target and I don't work for Target. I'm not begging for Target goods here, but Target seems to have its finger on the pulse. And if Target decides years before the state steps in that you know it needs to do a little gender neutral action in its store. So be it. So again, let the market just kind of drive the decision. The government doesn't have to put its stamp and say that you, you, and you must do this. Yeah, it's becoming a total nanny state. Yep. Um, more of what you can do, what you can't do, or we're going to use the tax system to punish you if you do this or if you don't do this. Um, you know, it, you know, one one of the um, you know playing off that idea. Um, if you look at um, when I, when I wrote this column this week about um that came out today in our uh, terms of uh, shameless promotions i'll i'll throw in a i'll throw in a line for our um, our weekly column california on your mind uh bill, bill great on politics and 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 uh and, and lee focused on economics um i read about tesla uh with tesla with tesla now leaving and um you know the average purchaser of a tesla in california is a household of about uh well actually the driver is about $180,000 on average in salary. Um, And what are they getting? They're getting tax breaks. They're getting enormous tax breaks or they have gotten tax breaks in the past. They'll get, there'll be another half a billion dollars of tax breaks coming up in the future. And so we're writing checks, (laughs) you know, the landscaper who's gonna have his gas powered blower and maybe lawnmower taken away from him who's, maybe making 50,000 a year, um, his gas taxes are going to fund subsidies to people, to households of over $200,000. Uh, and, um, and, you know, and, and it's just ironic in the state that prides itself as being so progressive. And uh, all it does is just contribute to, you know, that, that dreaded word inequality, but the people in Sacramento are increasing that, uh, and in some ways deliberately. I think they must understand what's going on here, um, and yet they continue to to do more of it. Um, and, and as you would say, they have they have way too much time on their on their hands. Yeah, I would note one final thing about the uh, about the EV Lee. If you look at the uh, governor's fifteen billion dollar climate change uh, package that he signed a few weeks ago, there's about four billion in that that's carved out to encourage people to switch over to actually it's about four billion dollars to buy a state fleet of EVs and so forth, trucks, school buses, and things like that. But also money meant to encourage um, poorer Californians, less wealthy Californians, to buy EVs. But here it gets complicated, Lee, because number one, you have to convince those folks that an EV is in their future. 
you're going to have to find an affordable EV because you mentioned the $180,000 salary. Well, that makes sense because what does a new Tesla cost? 60, 70, 80,000 bucks, whatever. I think Musk's dream at one point was to build a $35,000 to $40,000 Tesla to compete with lower end BMWs and Audis. He hasn't realized that clearly. So again, the market's going to have to find that affordable EV. But then one other angle to this, you're going to again have to find a charger to charge in your EV, which means it get back to a problem of creating 1.2 million chargers by the year 2030. That's what's required here in California. But then on top of that, Lee, we'll end on a sour note, crime. If everybody has EVs in California, especially in poor neighborhoods, then just as people go around and they steal catalytic converters, people will go around and start stealing batteries. And so, again, this it's just sort of this Gordian knot of California you have to untangle to do something lofty like getting everybody off of fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, you know, policymaking in California is like the... Um, you know, the old proverb about the Dutch boy and the dike. And um, and the more more you try to plug up, the more holes pop open and then you just, you know, it's Sisyphus all all over again. And, uh, and we, you know, we haven't even talked about what happens when these batteries no longer work um, and the, the disposal issue involved with those batteries. And, the toxic substance substances within those batteries. Um, we'll have to dump them. In, we'll have to dump them in the desert in Nevada, which means we'll have to pay a lot of money to Nevada to do this. So. Yeah, yeah, okay. There, there's, there's Nevada's diversified economy. Um, we'll dump them in Nevada. Or bring organized crime to California because they're good at burying stuff in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> the people, you know, the people responsible for Jimmy Hoff at the Meadowlands. Yeah, they, we've got a new gig for them. Uh, gentlemen, I'd like to cap this off with a final question. Tonight, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants face off for the deciding Game 5 of the National League's Division Series at Oracle Park. Uh, gentlemen, any predictions? And as a follow-up to that, um, what does the series indicate about the balance of power here in California in terms of North, where Bill and I are, uh, and um, versus the South, uh, where you are, Lee? Well, it's, you know, I, I mean, my, in my opinion, I think this is sort of the World Series. I think it's, um, it's unfortunate. It's just, it's just five games because these are the two best teams in baseball and um, just, you know, remarkable regular season statistics, uh, great rivalry, uh, both teams coming over from, from New York. And, uh, you know, great pitching staffs. Um, tonight's going to be intriguing because I, I just, I don't know, Bill, I read quickly that I think, I can't remember which team is going to be starting a reliever. Uh, as the starting pitcher instead of uh, instead of their normal starter. So I don't know what's going on there, whether uh, the normal starter has got some kind of uh, injury. <clears throat> but it's been a great series, 2-2. Uh, as I said, I think it's a shame it's not a seven-game series. Um, and, you know, it, we're, we're, we still live in a life where – you know, the North really has a distaste for the South and the South really has a distaste for the North. And this is a perfect illustration of where people can really come together and, 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 you know, and sort of vent on the other, on the, on the other side. So North is, you know, hoity-toity technology. The South is more surfing, cool. uh, And that, you know, that's, that's, you know, this is a great time of year. Yeah, so baseball is a passion of mine, so October is a real challenge for my productivity, although I found this year, interesting enough, this is the only playoff series I've really been locked into, and maybe it is proof that I'm becoming more of a Californian, but uh, so many ways to look at this. These are the two teams with the best records in baseball uh, by far. Uh, These are two teams with a real genuine rivalry. Uh, They're two teams that speak to volumes about California, because remember the Dodgers come out to California in the late 1950s, which really helps legitimize the state in some regards, because now you're bringing baseball out to the West Coast. And if you're familiar with the details of that, uh, it was a two-team deal. The Dodgers really couldn't pull us off unless they had the Giants out here as well because you needed a team nearby to play just for the sake of the schedule. Uh, There's always been kind of a chip on the shoulder uh, in this rivalry, if you will, and it comes down, Lee, to those magical words, beat L.A., which you hear constantly, constantly in sports, be it when the Lakers play or when the Dodgers play. People just love to get worked up about Los Angeles because it's a menace which does tie to politics in a fascinating way, Lee. Uh, One of the uh, more flamboyant jobs in California politics is being the mayor of Los Angeles. There's probably no larger dead-end job in California than the mayor of Los Angeles. If you are Antonio Villaraigosa, Dick Reardon, um, 
Uh, Tom Bradley, Sam Yorty, you try for a higher office and you invariably fail. And why is it? I think in part because you have Los Angeles uh, stigmatized on you. Uh, it speaks to economy, if you will. The two teams, Lee, the Giants are really just kind of a, a compendium of players. The Dodgers have just a really incredible lineup of of all-stars and former MVPs and Cy Young winners. It's, it's more glamorous in that regard. But it does speak to one other thing, which is the North-South balance which has been bemoaned for years here. Northern California has dominated California politics for some time. And yes, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in theory a Southern Californian, uh, as was Gray Davis. But if you look at Jerry Brown, Gavin Newsom, Diane Feinstein, Kamala Harris, though she's technically an Angelino now, she's from Northern California, Nancy Pelosi. It is the North and San Francisco that really controls politics. Maybe that's because that city is just much more a machine. So that's why I really enjoy this. It's the baseball has been outstanding between these two teams. Lee is absolutely right. It feels more like the World Series than the World Series probably will feel. Um, nothing better than two teams that each have won 109 games deciding this once and for all. The two ballparks are amazing. Uh, Dodger Stadium is now the third oldest ballpark in, uh, in Major League Baseball, but it's pristine. I can tell you a story when I was there in 1988 when I went to get a Dodger dog, nothing better than a Dodger dog, and I dropped my wallet when I got my Dodger dog and got back to my seat about five minutes later and realized, oh my God, I dropped my wallet. And I went back and guess what? Somebody turned it into the vendor. What a happy place to be. One of the cleanest stadiums you'll ever be in. And then on top of that, the Giants ballpark, Oral ballpark in downtown San Francisco, a beautiful piece of property, which the Giants themselves built. So there's a testament to not needing taxpayer subsidies. So anyway, there are just a lot of ways to carve this rivalry down just beyond what goes on between the between the two lines. So uh, yeah. thanks for bringing up, and it should be a good game tonight. And since we're doing this for the game, since I study the sport, I will not do a prediction because invariably I'll be wrong. Just if you're, if you, if you're, if you're listening to this after the game, I hope it was a great game as I anticipate and, uh, good for California, Lee. We put up, we put a quality product on the field for America to see. Good for, yeah, good for California. Good for baseball. Good for America. Um, base, uh, baseball faces some economic challenges as they're losing viewership and, in particular, losing younger demographics. So that's kind of another story for another day. But Giants and Dodgers, what a great tradition. I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but um, you know, I, as a kid, I remember you know Sandy Koufax. Um, Don Drysdale, Juan Marichal, all those great pitchers. And we've kind of had, you know, at some level, some of the games have been, you know, sort of pitchers duels, which, which yes. for me are fun to watch. I think maybe for some others, they, you know, they prefer kind of a 10 to seven game rather than a, a two, a two to one game. But um, yeah, great, to, great tradition, great rivalry, uh, great for, um, yeah, great for the rest of the country to see such two really amazing, amazing, um, uh, amazing teams. Um, if only would go, uh, well, if only they had it going seven, but it is what it is. It is. Well, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you again, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Take care, Lee. Thank you, Jonathan. You too, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast for the governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. If you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover INST. That's at Hoover INST. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen CA. Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidi sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.